Thanks, brother. There we go. Okay. Need to get back in shape. If they know, I love how you went British on adversaries when you said that word. That was great. Going British on us. All right. Well, good morning again. Good to see old faces and new faces. Robin and I have been in Israel for the past 10 days. We got back Wednesday, and so if I seem off, just blame it on that, okay? Still adjusting to the time, but it was a great trip, and uh, we went with uh, actually Nathaniel and Anna and, and Tom and Jackie Dosh as well, and we have a partner over there that's, he's one of our two, they're one of our two Middle East partners, and they work with a persecuted church and with Muslims, and so it's sort of a partner trip, and I've never seen them on the ground before, and partially just a chance to see Israel, so it was really, the scripture really came alive, it was wonderful. Um, we, and I just want to say before I show you what's in my pocket, that sounds kind of weird, I don't know, it's just this, um, haha, mystery, um, before I show you this thing, um, I just want to say thanks for, I mean, it's, it's a two-year-old plant, um, I'm the head pastor, and it was nice to be able to leave and not have a care in the world, just to know that parish leaders are leading and shepherding and Paul and Justin are preaching and the band's here and people are serving and you're being the church. And so um, it was, it was, we missed you too. And so thank you for that. Thank you for working for the Lord and serving faithfully and, um, and we missed you. So it's good to be back. But okay, what's, what's in my pocket? Um, a shard from Shiloh. A shard from Shiloh. So this is a pottery shard from the ground in the first place that we went, Shiloh, which just happens to be, I mean, happens in God's providence uh, to be the context, the setting for our, our text this morning where, where Hannah went and prayed, uh, where Eli was, was the high priest of the tabernacle in Shiloh for, I think, almost four centuries, 369 years before, um, before the capital was moved to Jerusalem. So that's where it all started after they were wandering in the wilderness, they put the tabernacle in Shiloh, and they would um, come and use pots at Shiloh um, for worship and for eating, but they were all consecrated in a special way because they were there at the tabernacle, and so they would break the pots before going home. They would come thrice, three times a year to Shiloh from all over Israel, all the tribes, for the three main feasts, and they would eat there and worship the Lord and, and assemble and feast together. And they would break the pots, and they would go home. They didn't want to use holy pots for common use back home. So there are tons of shards all around. So this is just a piece of pottery from the ground in Shiloh. So the, the scriptures, I, I didn't feel more close to God. So that was encouraging in the sense that it's like we don't have to go to Jerusalem because Christ ascended and gave us his Holy Spirit. And so you can't get more close than God in you. You're as close now as you will be to God, although one day you will see him face to face. Um, but the scripture does come alive. Oh yeah, Jesus, you know, cast the demon out of the guy and sent him the pigs here and, and so on and so forth. Amazing, amazing. So it went, it went in a lot of ways, the Bible from being a text, God's very word, like Nathaniel was saying, his breath written through men over the course of 1,500 years to being history. It happened right here. God walked right here, and he's coming back right here, you know? So, yeah, it was good. So thank you for letting us take that trip. Um, we are week two into an Advent series on just Advent. It means, in Latin, um, arrival or coming, and 
celebrating the first advent of our Lord, of the fact that God became a man in a single cell and then grew into a baby in Mary's womb, a virgin's womb, um, didn't receive the sin curse because he didn't, there was no human father, but God, his father, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary. He was fully human because he was born of a virgin and he represented us as a man and lived the life as the God-man that we couldn't live and die the death that we deserve to die for our disobedience and rebellion against God um, as a substitute for us. And then rose from the dead, vindicating his payment and saying, uh, God accepted it. You are free. Anyone who looks to me is free, is clean, and let's go. And so he reigns from heaven now, but he's coming again. So we live, that's the second advent. And when he comes again, he comes bodily as the reigning, conquering king, and he'll finish what he started. So we live in the in-between phase, the two, in between the two advents, the shadow lands, as C.S. Lewis called it, where God's kingdom is spreading, but it's spreading in weakness and through suffering in large part. And as Christians are persecuted, the, the guy that led our trip, um, that's, that's the head of this partnership that we have um, as a church, he said, when Christians are persecuted, it's like a fist on water. It's like you, you, you try to stamp out Christians, but when you stamp them out, they spread, just like Christ on the cross. Uh, we tried to extinguish him, but through the cross, his victory was most greatly displayed and his power has gone forth and will continue to go forth until he comes again and finishes what he started. So anyway, um, this is, we're celebrating the coming of the king in weakness for us uh, the first time and looking ahead to his second advent. Um, the fact is we need a king. We need a king. Um, in the context, and, and Hannah very much realizes that in her prayer, which we'll look at today, but the context here is that Hannah's on the tail end of this like 400, 250 to 400 year period of judges. Uh, Israel is, um, they've come into the promised land, and, but they don't have a king. And the book of Judges is all about just how the people of Israel spiral into more and more sin and waywardness and rebellion and darkness. And they need a leader and God keeps raising up judges, but they really need a king. And God is their king, but they keep, they keep just refusing him as their king. And so the refrain toward the end of the book of Judges is, in that, at that time, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so Paul preached last week on, here comes this, this nobody, uh, um, infertile, barren wife, and the guy's gotten a second wife to give him kids probably, and she's rejected, and he loves her, but she can't have any kids, and she puts a lot of her worth into that, and, um, and she's from a backwater province, and it, even in Israel, on this patch of land that's right, you know, there's this tiny bit of land in, in, on the world scene, and and God gives her this child, and, and um, we're looking at that prayer after she receives that child, who grows up to be, who, anyone? Samuel, the prophet, he's sort of like a prophet, priest, and king, who ends up anointing, at the end of this period of Judges, the first king of Israel, Saul, and then later, toward the end of his life, David, who's um, a progenitor of, of Jesus, uh, the great king. And so... Um, she very much, there's no king in Israel, all did what was right in their own eyes. She's looking forward to a king. Her son's going to anoint one. And in this prayer, we see her heart and we see a model for prayer, but we also see the shape that the rest of the book of Samuel will take. So in the Hebrew Bible, um, we, we chop it up into two books, First and Second Samuel. But in the Hebrew Bible, it's just Samuel. It's just one book. They have the same exact books we do, uh, but it's 22 by their rendering, because some of them are clumped together. Ours is 39 Old Testament books. Same exact. Jesus' Bible was our Old Testament, exactly. Uh, which is one, other, one of the many reasons that the Apocrypha, part of the Roman Catholic canon, we don't count that because that wasn't Jesus' scriptures. So that's one thing. That's a side note. Um, so 
Um, in fact, at the beginning of the Jewish New Year called Rosh Hashanah every year, the first day um, of the New Year celebration, this prayer is sung uh, by the Jewish people by the, um, in Judaism still today. It's sort of like the ideal prayer. So we're going to look at, at how that is um, a bit. And it's prophetic, and it forecasts not only the shape of Samuel, but of really of the rest of salvation history. So um, it's an interpretive key to understanding the whole book and the whole Bible. So three, three points. I'll try to sort of glance through them briefly. There's a lot of good information here, but um, it's been a rich service. And by the way, let me just say, as far as, the, as far as the gathering goes, and there have been a lot of rich words spoken by a lot of people. I love the church is more manifestly becoming the church on Sundays as we have a testimony and this person gets up and this person gets up. And it's just, you are the church. You know, we are the church celebrating and worshiping God together. Um, and it's been so rich. But I will say, um, as I see Robert with one of, one of his two twin boys back there um, holding him, that out of everything that was spoken, maybe the thing that most reminds me of the wonder of, the, of Advent is the babies that have cried. I think, I think my, my eyes were closed, but I think, you know, one of the two twins was probably the one that was crying a bit ago, when, and I'm imagining Ashley was running out with, man... That's welcome here because it reminds us of the miracle. What better to remind us of the miracle of God's humility and the lengths that he went to to save us than these tiny children. All they can do is cry. They can't even say, I want milk, although we know that's what they mean, or I have a, I've dirtied myself. Jesus did that. Jesus dirtied himself. Jesus cried because he was hungry or tired. Amazing. What humility. And he lived a full human life for us as our representative before God. Let's rest in him. In the sermon. Done. No, just kidding. Um, you wish. <laughs> I'm back. Um, <laughs> okay, briefly. I should never say that word. We're going to try. Um, one, two, three. Number one, the way Hannah prays. We're going to look at verses one through three. The way Hannah prays. Look at her prayer. Ver, uh, two, the way God rules. Verses four through nine, the center of the, of the prayer. And finally, um, number three, the king God exalts. So the way Hannah prays, the way God rules, and the king God exalts. Let's look at the way Hannah prays first, the first few verses. How does she pray? I mean, Paul talked about this last week. How does she pray? She prays desperately and therefore honestly because she's in a desperate situation. Um, What she doesn't do in chapter one is go, is talk schmack back to Penina or Penina. She doesn't do that. She basically goes and talks smack to God. Okay, she takes her grievances, and instead of gossiping or, or um, being catty or rude or mean, she, she goes to God with her grievances, and she pours her heart out to him. And so much so that what does Eli, the high priest, when he encounters her praying, what does he think? He thinks she's just dead drunk, right? And there's some other contextual evidence for why he might have thought that. He, she probably wasn't the only one that came praying and was actually drunk, but she wasn't drunk. And I just want to say to you, you know, a diagnostic question, like, and say to myself, have you ever prayed in such a way that you were praying, the way you were praying, you could have been mistaken as drunk? Man, okay, Lord, I want to pray like that. I want to pray like that. I want to pray in such a way that somebody could look at me and go, man, are you drunk? No, I'm just pouring my heart out to God whether in joy or sadness. Enough of these stoical, uh, stale prayers. Lord, change, change us, make us a praying people like that. Um, uh, Jerem Bars, 
says this. He says, God desires that we be honest with him, even when our hearts are full of bitterness. He's not perturbed or critical, even when we tell him of our deepest disappointments and our, our hidden sorrows and anguish. He knows what we think anyway, and so he wants us to pour that stuff out to him because it's a relationship. And we start to understand better, and we're encountering God, and that changes us. It's not just that we're getting answers. The encounter with the living God, when I'm around a person, I become like that person. When I'm talking with God, I become more like him. And things happen, and he hears our prayers, and he acts on them. For some reason, he sometimes waits for us to voice things, even though he knows already the way he is. He sometimes waits for us to voice things before he acts. I mean, the best illustration I can give is that with my kids. Like, I know what they need, but honestly, any parent can say, that has a talking child, okay, can say this is the case easily. I oftentimes, often, will not give something to my kid unless they come up and ask. Oftentimes, I'm just giving them something because they kind of, Dad, can I have this? You know what? I wasn't thinking about it, but sure. That's for some reason, that's the way God is. Anyway, so she's pouring her heart out to him. Jaron Bars goes on. God does not reject Hannah, nor does God reject us when we pour out to him our anxieties, our frustrations, our disappointed hopes and expectations. I think I'm afraid to pray like that sometimes, guys, because I'm a sovereigntist and I believe that, you know, oh, all things happen according to your will, and who am I to just lay that aside? Yes, God's in control, but be real. Okay, that's what Hannah teaches us, right? We may even say this is a basic part of what prayer is to be. We are encouraged to bring to the Lord all the saddest and most broken places in our hearts and lives. That is Jerem Bars. And that's really, if you read the Psalter, the Psalms, the 150 Psalms that are the songbook of the people of God, kind of right in the middle of the Old Testament, they're so full of expressions like this, of people just pouring their hearts out to God. Let's be honest like that with God. Um, we can't really get anywhere with him unless we are. And that's a, more of a, that's repentance on my part, saying that out loud. I pray, I pray not the way Hannah does too much. So what, one of the first things we see, if you look at verses one and two of her prayer, is that she shows us right away something surprising. What would you think she'd be praying to God after she gets this child, Samuel, this desire of her heart? He answers her prayer and gives her a son that she's about to go give back to him and take him to the temple. Okay, what, what or to the tabernacle, rather. What do you think she would start off with? Maybe something like, yeah, thank you for this child. Would have been great. But that's not what's recorded here. Instead, what she says is she's, She's basically pouring out her heart to God and saying, I'm, I'm so thankful for you. You're my everything. There's no mention of Samuel, even though it's clear that she loves him dearly. And I'm sure it was hard for her to give him up. But she's just obsessed with the living God. Um, it'd be worth reading these verses now. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And on she goes, and we'll read that in a bit. Um, so sh- the the beginning and the end of verse one, um, she's rejoicing not in her reverse circumstances, the fact that she has a son and she was barren, but in God himself. And she shows us this is our proper place and this is our soul's rest until we get to that place. And you know what? In this life, none of us are gonna get there perfectly, but abiding in Christ more and more to the degree that we see this is where we need to be, this is where we need to be living, abiding and resting is out of a place where God is who we're rejoicing in. Things come and go. And if we're looking to those things to satisfy us, we're gonna just, our lives, we're just gonna be like this. But he's our rock that steadies us because he is what we are made for and he will never be taken away from us. Everything else will in the end. 
Um, why does she mention my heart, my strength, my mouth exalting God, rather than just saying I exalting God, I praise God? It's poetic, but it's also sort of, I think, a way of saying, like, my heart is doing something that I can't even help it. You know, it's not like this compulsion. She's compelled by who God is to worship. It's almost like an involuntary urge. Um, her heart is leaping within her. It's jumping out of her chest, that sort of thing. Um, and another thing is that in Hebrew parlance, in the Old Testament, the heart, it's not like we think of heart and emotions a lot today, like Valentine's Day. Oh, how sweet. But in the, in the Hebrew worldview, the heart was the center. It was the seat. It was like the head and the emotions, the intellect, the emotions, the will, the body. It was everything. It was the seat, the core of who you are. She's saying, all of me praises all of you. That's what I'm about. Um, and then she goes on to verse 2. It's a little verse with huge implications. No one is holy but the Lord. Okay? In other words, you are unique. There's no one else like you. There's nothing, there's no thing else like you. And I'm directing all of me to all of you. Come what may. If I get another son, if I don't, if this is the only one and I'm giving him to God, you know what? I trust you. I love you. You made me for yourself. I'm happy in you. I'm resting in you. I know that I won't rest until I rest in you. It's all wrapped up. She's showing us the way to peace. She's showing us the way to centeredness joy, to everlasting joy. Um, And then again, the second line advances the first. There is none but you. There is none but you. What? I thought there was Samuel. I thought there was your husband, Elkanah. I thought, no, there's none but you. Everything else falls away. Um, Tim Keller talks about, he's a teacher up in New York, and he talks about how, I think I've mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. When you're married and things in the house aren't so great, you and your wife, you and your husband, you're just at odds, and you're really not well. Maybe it's just a big argument you had, whatever. But it could be a lot worse, right? But things aren't well, and you go out in the world, and your job's great, and you're kicking booty and taking names and all this stuff, and uh, everything else in the world's great, but your marriage isn't doing well. Well, then it really doesn't matter. Nothing else is, is really going well if, you're, if that center thing isn't doing well. It just affects everything. The opposite's true, Right? So everything around you is kind of falling apart, but your marriage is solid. You're loving your wife. She's loving you. You're in a good place. None of that other stuff matters as much. Well, if that's the case, and it is, how much more with the living God who made us for himself, who spoke and made all things, who sustains all things, who came to save us and is coming again, who's reigning now. Um, And so she gets that. She gets that. And she says this again, there is no rock but our God. There is no rock but our God in that third line. And what is she saying? It's, it's an anti-idolatry line. In other words, I'm not going to build my life on anything else. And in fact, we can fool ourselves into thinking that we can build our lives on our career or our health or our good looks or our, did I say intellect or our resume or people that like us or a good reputation or whatever. I could go on. I could go on until I don't have any more breath, okay? But none of that stuff is a rock. It's all sand. It's good stuff, it can be, can be, but it's not meant for us to build our lives on, and it is a terrible foundation. But God alone is our rock. And if we build our lives on him, that's how Jesus ended the best sermon ever preached, right, in Matthew chapter seven. We build our lives on God and his word, and our relationship with him found in Christ alone, everything else will find its place, everything else. 
She gets it. Bullseye. Okay. Let me pick through. What am I going to say here before we advance to point two? Um, look at, she says, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. That word derides actually can also mean, and really does mean, my mouth opens wide over. That's literally what the Hebrew says. My mouth gapes over or opens wide over my enemies. It's almost like she's going to devour her enemies. That's kind of frightening, right? Um, it, and uh, who are her enemies? Well, you know, Penina is one of them. You know, we just remind, we're reminded of that. Penina who teased her and jeered her and was the favorite wife or whatever. Not the favorite wife, but was having the kids. Couldn't pump them out fast enough. And she's just, te- can you imagine how mean she must have been? Just teasing. Hey, you can't have any kids. That's, what a terrible household that must have been. Um, but she's not, it seems like she's being kind of nasty. But actually, what, notice what she's not saying. She's not trash-talking Penina and rubbing it in her face. She's praying to God. And she's also not just talking to Penina, which we'll get to in a second. She's saying, my enemies, plural. Okay? And she's basically, pour, again, sort of like Paul talked about last week, uh, she's pouring out her heart to God in honesty and taking the poison to God and, and, and praying in desperation and praying in praise and saying, you know what, Lord, you are just and you take care of stuff. And that means, here's the, here's the application point, it means that I don't have to trash talk, right? Would that we took more of our energy out on our knees to the living God. Get as nasty and as honest and as desperate as you want, but do it with God. He's a safe place and he wants to hear. And that's the way that she shows us right now. What else is she doing? She's tying in her story to the larger story, the larger narrative, which is really one of the big um, takeaways from her prayer that we can gain. Um, again, because this prayer is not just a singular prayer. It shows us the way that it gives us the shape of the rest of Samuel and really the rest of what God does in, in, in history. Pretty amazing. Um, because she doesn't say, my enemy, Penina, comma, Penina. She says, my enemies. And one of the things that that does is it takes us back. She's praying what she knows of God's word, and she's praying what she knows of salvation history and of God's law that's already been given to this people. And the first word, uh, the first time this word enemies appears is in Genesis 3.15, in something that scholars, theologians call the Proto-Evangelion, the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve have just fallen, and God comes into the center of the curse, and he speaks to the serpent, and he speaks to the woman, and he says, enemies, or enmity, enemies will I make you. It's the first word in the verse in the Hebrew. Enmity or hatred is usually how it's translated. Will I place between the serpent and the woman and between the seed of the serpent or the children of Satan and the children of the woman? And he prophesies about the coming one who will crush the serpent's head, and that's Jesus. He will come through the seed of of a woman, through the godly line, and the seed of the serpent will be striking at the seed of the woman all that time. And that's really sort of the trajectory of the rest of the scriptures. There's the seed of God coming, it's going to come through a woman that's going to crush the serpent's head, and there's the seed of Satan that's fighting all the time to, to extinguish that line. That's really the trajectory of the rest of the scriptures, and she's hooking into that, and what's she doing? Listen to me. I'm going to point two in just a second. She's hooking her tiny story, tiny. She's a no one. She's in the backwater. I mean, Israel's tiny. Have you ever seen a map, and you think in your head that it's like the eastern side of the Mediterranean? It's not. It's like a t- 
tiny portion of the south, and the rest of it's like Syria and Turkey and Jordan. It's a small, small nation at the crossroads of the world. And she's in this backwater province within that tiny nation. And she's, she's this woman who's one of two wives who has no kids, and now she has one. And what is she doing? She's taking her story, and she's saying, my story matters because God made me, and he cares about me, and he hears my prayers, the prayers of the smallest, and he's weaving every single, get this, every single uh, thread into a tapestry. Every single thread of God's people, he's weaving, no matter how small, into a, a magnificent tapestry that will tell the story of salvation history. And it will not perish because Christ died and rose again, and he's, he's using all those threads to weave something wonderful. And he's going to come again, and he's going to turn the carpet over. You know, the carpet's on the wrong side right now. We can't see the pattern, right? It's an overused metaphor, but it's overused because it's true, and it works, all right? He's, he's weaving this tapestry, and we can't see the pattern, but when you, he's going to come again in power as king, the returning king. He's going to flip it over, and we're going to see all of the choreography. And she's un- she understands that. Everything you're doing in my life, even the sadness and the infertility, God, even the going to my, to, the, to my knees in desperate prayer, which led to a son, which will lead to him governing Israel and anointing David, who will lead to Jesus, who will change creation. Everything matters. And she gets that. And she gets it in a lot of ways. Another way she gets it and I'll close with this, is if you look at the word, she mentions, um, she mentions right before my mouth opens wide over my enemy, she says, my heart exalts, my strength, and then my mouth. My strength, second line of verse one, my strength is exalted in the Lord. That word is horn in the Hebrew. So like the strength of, a, of an animal, like a rhinoceros, right, is a horn. It's horn, okay? Um, the, uh, the last verse in this, in this prayer talks about the, the, the power, I think, the ESV translates it. Here it translates it, strength, my strength. It's actually my horn is exalted in the Lord. The last verse, verse 10, it says um, the power of God's king. It talks about the power of God's king. That word power is the same word, horn. What's she doing? And it's talking about how the, and I'll close with this point. The, all of history is going to make sense. It's converging on this king that's coming and will be made sense by this ruling king who's going to come, okay, um, th- through this king David that she doesn't even know about yet that her, that her son will anoint. And um, so that's God's solution for everything is this coming king. And so that's his overarching plan is this king who ends up being Jesus. And what she's saying is in those two, those two words, horn and horn at the beginning and the end of the prayer, connect her story, my horn, to the grand story that is accomplished through Jesus Christ, the horn of God's king, his exalted. What's she doing? Again, same thing. She's in so many ways, I don't have time to flesh them all out, but she's hooking her story into the larger narrative and saying, it matters. God cares about it. There's nothing overlooked. You know that the single, a single cell, I don't even, I have, I told myself I was going to leave this out, but a single cell is like, so complicated, a tiny bacterial cell, it's the, it's the smallest, most least complicated thing that we can, uh, least complicated cell that we know of. It's a bacterial cell, and the tiniest bacterial cells are incredibly small, weighing less than 10 to the negative 12 power grams. It's each, in effect, a veritable micro-miniaturized factory 
containing thousands of exquisitely designed pieces of intricate molecular machinery made up altogether of 100,000 million, what does that number even mean? Atoms. One bacterial cell. The simplest cell that we know of. Made up of 100,000 million atoms. Far more complicated, um, this man, Michael Denton, says, far more complicated than any machine built by man and absolutely without parallel in the non-living world. What's my point? My point is, God is the maker of the stars. There is a star out there that, uh, now I'm talking, hey, by the way, okay, David Baker, where are you? Happy birthday, brother, number two five. He loves stars, and he's always spouting this star information. There's a star out there called Betelgeuse. You've seen him if you've looked at Orion, one of my, my, maybe my favorite constellation, the warrior, and his left shoulder, if you're looking at him, his left shoulder, if you look even with your naked eye, but certainly with binoculars, you can see it's a little red, it's more red than the rest of the stars, it's because it's a red giant. And I know that you know enough about stars to know what that is. It's a star that's dying, and when they die, they explode. They get bigger before they implode. And it's so big that the sun is a little less than a million miles across, okay? A million Earths could fit inside of our sun. But our sun is only about 800 plus thousand miles across only. Betelgeuse is so big that 93 million miles extend between the sun and our Earth. 93 million miles. It takes light eight minutes to travel. Betelgeuse is so big that it would actually envelop the Earth the orbit of the earth, it, it's that big. That's how much bigger, and go, it would go beyond that, like all the way to Mars or the asteroid belt. That's how big Betelgeuse is. It dwarfs our sun. And there's a, there's a star, and this is, David, this is what David loves to say. There's a star called Musifi, and these are just stars we know about. There's a star called Musifi, and Ted just, just looked at this stuff, that's so big that if you put it on a big jumbotron, which the speaker did, Louis Giglio, next to our sun, you can't even see our sun. You can't even put a pinprick on it that's small enough to be our sun. That's how, that's one star. Our galaxy, our galaxy, there are over 100 billion galaxies we know of, 100 billion. Our galaxy, one, has anywhere between 150 and 250 billion stars. Okay, so what am I saying? Okay, I should probably just end here. Okay, the next two points are gonna be super quick. All right, what am I saying? What is Hannah saying? God is so big, he's so massive, he's weaving this massive tapestry, but he also cares about the smallest detail, and he can do things about them, and he will, and he's weaving the story of his loved ones that look to Jesus Christ for their salvation into that story, and it all matters. I don't care where you are, and if you are in the low place, or if you're going to be in the low place next week, and if you feel like you're forgotten, and if you feel like there's no plan they feel like things have gone awry, just remember Hannah's prayer. Just remember her condition and look at what God did through this prayer of this small but significant woman to God. And you are as significant. Um, Okay, that's point one, point two, and point three. Look, we're gonna be quick in point two and three. Point two, the way God rules, the way God rules, verses four through nine, it's it's the body, the torso of this prayer. It's just the way he rules is by reversals. The whole thing is just God takes the rich and he makes them poor. He takes the poor and he makes them rich. He takes the elevator and brings them low. He takes the low and brings them high. You know, he makes the, the dead alive and he makes the living dead. And he casts uh, those that are apart, uh, opposed to him into hell. And he 
brings those to him that are, you know, trusting him. It's just reversal after reversal after reversal. He's a God of reversals. That's the way he works. That's what he loves to do. It's the way his kingdom works. Um, Yahweh, the covenant name for God, Yahweh, the unspeakable name by the Jews, is the subject of 18 verbs in a 58-word section of this prayer. Dwayne Garrett says this. He says, these verses contain one of the Hebrew Bible's highest concentrations of verbs with Yahweh as the subject. So God is the one doing all these things. He is the one who effects all these reversals. He who can cast into hell and bring to himself and make us right before him, which he has done in Christ. Um, he, his kingdom is one of reversals. When he comes, many in power now, the smart, the people with the good resumes, the people that have a lot. And guys, that's a lot. Of, we're, we're at the top, and a lot of us are. We are very privileged in this world's eyes. And so this is a really significant lesson and prayer for us. Okay, so I'm just going to spend a couple minutes on this, but I want you to internalize this and make it a prayer. And I want this to shape us as a people. Um, when he comes, many in power will be out of power, serving those who served them whom they oppressed. Um, this is exactly opposite of the way that all the other religious systems worked. The other religious systems, the gods associated themselves with the powerful and the blessed and the beautiful, not God. God is saying, I want to be known as one who has a special heart for the marginalized, the poor. One of the reasons that we have partnerships, one of the reasons, they aren't everything that we want to do as a church with those that are marginalized, the persecuted church, Muslims who are highly marginalized in our culture. Okay, forget about what you think politically. Let's vote however we want to vote. But as Christians, as people of God who were on the edges, who were heading to hell, and God had mercy on us through no good of our own and took us in, our posture before anyone that's marginalized in front of us is to reach out to them and to share the love of Christ with them. And so, and so Muslims, handicapped, the ill, the infirm, elderly, the unborn, uh, my, uh, lots of minorities, minority culture, on and on I could go. We are to have, as God's people, a special heart for all these categories because God does. Um, and I want to be known as a church. That's, so that's one of the reasons we're going out to serve immigrants and refugees, many of whom are Muslims. Because, and how perfect that we're doing it today when this text is about a God who has a special heart for those on the edges, who loves to take the low and bring them high. Wow, that we get to be a part of that. Amazing. Um, and and Jerem Bars, he says, he says, the world is full of powerful, arrogant, wealthy people who ignore God and who trust in their riches and in their strength and power, but God will cast them down and instead will raise up the poor and humble who put their trust in him. And that's the key. It's not how much do I have. It's when I have a lot in, the, in this life, I tend to put my trust in it. And that's where it gets perilous. The poor they aren't virtuous in and of themselves. No one is. No one is right before God, but the poor have less, they tend to have less confidence in what they have because they don't have a lot. So it's about where we're placing our confidence and realizing we who have a lot, one, that it's perilous. And that's one of the reasons we want to give to remind ourselves that everything we have is the Lord's and to be releasing our grip on not our stuff, on his stuff, to steward it well. But then also we are called to with our resources, bless. We're not called to hoard. We're gonna be held accountable one day before the king. And I'm gonna be held accountable to make sure that I prepped you as best I could to let you know that we're gonna be held accountable. And how did we live? How do we steward what God's given us? Our resources, everything, our time, our money, our house, our social relationships, our contacts. How do we steward those? Do we steward them 
so that when our boat is lifted, all the other boats around us are lifted too? Or did we just say, more for me, more for me, uh, uh, uh. you know, like a wood chipper, just, I mean, sorry, okay, that, maybe that didn't, that didn't preach, all right, I'm going to try, um, that's what I tend to do so much, just to gather and, you know, just to, all the coins, they're all mine, precious, you know, um, but no, no, God calls us um, to be as he is, and crushes my heart, because there's so much good here, but it, not in this, but in this text, but I, I need to, I need to finish up. So um, let, me, let me do this. Um, Hannah ends with, she ends with talk, as I've mentioned, uh, her prayer with talk of the king. And there's, there's a problem here among scholars because they're like, hey, so remember the context I presented in the beginning. Uh, there was no king it, in this context. Like she was in the time of the judges and her son would come and would actually anoint the first king of Israel. But there isn't a king yet. So she's talking about God's king, but there isn't a king. So this must have been written later and like edited in. Okay, maybe, but I don't think so. Um, first of all, because a king had been mentioned. So Genesis 17, a line of kings will come from you, Abraham. Nations will be blessed, okay, through your family and through your faith. I will make a great people out of you, and I will make a line of kings out of you. Deuteronomy 17, uh, here is how the king in the future, the future king that you have, Israel, here's how he's, he is to be. What's the first important thing about the king? Make sure he has a big, nice house to live in and has lots of ponies? No. Make sure that he meditates on my word day and night and rules according to it. Deuteronomy 17. So the king is mentioned. The king is coming. There is this consciousness of a king. And in, again, in, Ju- in Judges, what are the, what's the period she's living in? We have no king. Everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes. We need a king. There's this consciousness and this need among the people for a king. They're crying. And Hannah is right in the midst of this milieu. We all need a king. That's a, that's a fact. And we as Americans who were anti-monarchy, okay, fine, it's in, our, it's in our history. We have maybe a harder time understanding this. We need someone to rule and to govern. We're used to kings taking for themselves. But God is not that kind of king. And the king that God establishes on the throne to rule all things and to make sense of the world and to bring, to reverse the curse, to repeal it and to start something new that's gonna replenish everything and that's gonna bless his people. He's not like that. And that king, we can tell in a number of ways, reverberates throughout the book of Samuel, points us to David and ultimately to Jesus. It's not for no reason that Mary's prayer, which Paul mentioned last week, the Magnificat in Luke chapter one, echoes this prayer big time. Christians uh, that received that text and that composed that text, therefore, would have seen Hannah's prayer as prophetic of a coming king. Yes, David, but someone greater than David. David was a great king, but even he, he was a murderer, he was an adulterer, he fell short. But a Messiah, and she mentions this, it's the first mention in verse 10 of the word Mashiach, or Messiah, which means anointed one, in the, in, the old, in the Bible. This is the first mention of that word. The one who is anointed to be king, gonna be full of the spirit of God, what? Not to lord it over everyone, but surprise, to actually let go of all the riches that are his by right, and to be born poor, and to live a life of rejection, rejection by those that he created. Can you imagine? Rejection to the point of being nailed to a a wooden instrument of torture. And I was thinking about this in Israel. One of the amazing things about the cross, first of all, 
you can't put a guy under a pile of stones, which was the Jewish form of execution, but they couldn't execute in Jesus' day. So they were under Roman rule, so the Romans had to execute. So God orchestrated that. If Jesus had been stoned, you'd be wearing a necklace with stones on? No, it doesn't, it, a, a cross. We can see, whenever we look at the cross, we, we're reminded of the humility of God and the self-sacrifice of God and of the way this king is gonna rule. He's gonna, he's gonna let go of his riches and embrace poverty so that we could be rich, right? Um, you think about the cross too, like most forms of punishment, of, of, of death, like they kill you and you're dead. What do we get to see on the cross? We get to see God dying in the process of dying, almost singular in its form of execution is the cross where it takes usually days for the victim to die, in Jesus' case, six hours. And we get to hear one of the most precious things in the world. I can't wait to do more of a study on it. The final words of God in excruciating pain. What does he say? Stuff like, Father, forgive them. Wow. Wow. Father, forgive them. And, and God heard that prayer. He used that cross to forgive us. Stuff like, ah, he's in so much pain. He's becoming sin. He's enduring the white, hot fury of the wrath of God for us, taking our place. And what is he? He's concerned about not himself. I never hear a word of self-pity on the cross. What do I hear? He's looking out for his mom. Mom, I know that when I'm gone, you're not going to have a place, someone to take care of you because dad's gone. There's almost every evidence that Joseph was gone by this point. Mom, my best friend John, he, he's your son now. John, mom's your mother. Taking care of people, taking care of stuff, dying for the sins of the world, praying for us. Father, don't hold it against them, and he didn't. This is the king that Hannah foresees, and this is what he's done for us. This is who we serve and we live in the shadowlands now in every act of self-sacrifice and identifying with the poor and being for the marginalized, it spreads his kingdom, not because we're doing stuff that has gold stars, but because his life is flowing through us, his body, and he's gonna return and he's gonna finish it. So let's be a people that revel, as Hannah did in this king, that revel in him, that know that he is our identity, that he has done everything necessary for us and that burst forth with praise about who he is and get as many people to come into his kingdom through no good of their own. He's done it all. Come as possible by being for those with everything he's given us that have nothing. And you know who's the most poor? I don't care how much stuff you have, the lost. If you think about it from an eternal perspective, which Hannah does in this prayer, the lost are the most poor. Let's be a people, yes, for those that are socially disadvantaged, yes, a thousand times yes. But for the lost that, are, that understand what the stakes are, wow. Uh, that understand what Christ took and that if you don't hide in him, you will receive the punishment he endured. That's the fact. I don't care. You, you might believe something different. It doesn't change reality. It's coming. Hide in him. Let's be a people like that, that see those that are lost as desperately poor, no matter how many houses they have and vacation homes. Let's be a people like that who both preach the gospel, invite folks in with a sense of urgency, and are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to the less fortunate and to one another, you know, as there are needs in this body. So let me, let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for, whew, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for Hannah's prayer. I thank you for your grand plan accomplished ultimately through Jesus 
been inaugurated. It will be consummated when he returns. And until then, I pray that you'd find us faithful. I pray that you'd make us faithful. We love you. We bless you. Thank you for coming. In Jesus' name, amen. In our house, in the center of our house, we have a, a painting of, of, of Jesus. He's washing, he's on his knees, and he's taking off his outer garment, and he's, um, he's, he's got a towel wrapped around himself, and he's on his knees, and he's washing Peter's dirty feet. And our kids know that it's Peter, because Peter's, the guy's got his hand out. And we ask, who's that? It's Peter, how do you know? No, no. You know, Peter's saying, don't wash my feet. And Jesus says, hey, if you don't let me wash the dirtiest part of you, Listen to this. Listen. If you don't let me wash the dirtiest part of you and your feet represent all of you, in this text it says guard, God will guard the feet of his faithful ones. What does that mean? He's just going to guard our feet? No, it means all of us. If he's going to guard our feet, you don't think he's going to guard your head? Of course he is. Let me wash your feet. I'm, I'm, I'm coming in for the dirtiest place because I'm coming to make it clean. That's why I died. That's why I lived the life that you can't live and died the death that you deserve. That's why I rose from the dead. So he's washing Peter's feet. That's the kind of king we serve. What a great reminder. I need it more than anyone, let me tell you. I am the chief of sinners, let me tell you. I understand what Paul was saying. That's why I think God graced me to be a preacher of the gospel, to remind me more than anyone else of what I need. But today when you come and take of his body and blood, would you just think about that? Would you think about Hannah's prayer? The fact that he's, he's not a king who came in pomp and circumstance. He laid his life down receive that. He says, you, you need to receive that personally and feed on me and drink me if, if I'm going to be any good to you. Receive that. Receive that love from him.